Thanks, Pastor Bethany, and again, happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Hey, before I dive into the message this morning, what I'd really like to do is just stop for a second and, and pray. Pray for all you moms. Pray for all the different feelings that we're experiencing together on this particular Mother's Day. So let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you and we're thankful, Lord. We're thankful for moms, um, for motherhood, for the way that you choose to work in us and through us, through our moms, for the ways that you've blessed us and challenged us and shaped us. Lord, I'm aware that there are a lot of feelings around this day. You're aware of all those feelings, even more than we are. Um, and so I lift up people who maybe are struggling today, struggling with the relationship they have with their mom, with maybe the fact that they've lost their mom, struggling with maybe the reality that they need to be separated from their mom at this time. A lot of different feelings, God, and you're in the middle of all of those. We're just asking that you would move in, that you would bring comfort and peace and joy and reassurance to us. And then I also do pray, Lord, that the moms in our midst feel celebrated and loved and appreciated, that they feel seen for all that they're doing, Lord, that they would not feel extra pressure on this day to be some sort of superhuman, supernatural person, but they would feel your love and grace and peace and pleasure just wash over them. So, God, have your way with this day. We love you. We thank you for moms, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, friends. My name is Dave, and I am one of the pastors of Cedar Mill Bible. And this morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Daniel called Following God When Your World Turns Upside Down. So far in our series, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, has invaded Jerusalem. He's ransacked the temple, and he's taken some of the royal family back to Babylon to serve him. Among this group living in exile are a guy named Daniel and three of his friends. And in week one, we learned that there was an attempt to conform them into people who thought and lived like Babylonians. But Daniel and his buddies resist. They won't eat the king's food. They refuse to drink the king's wine. They will not give up their identities as children of the Most High God. You see, Daniel and his friends refuse to assimilate. They refuse to just blend in and think and look and act just like everybody else. But let me tell you something else Daniel and his friends refuse to do. They also refuse to separate. They will not completely remove themselves from being part of this culture. Instead, instead they take the approach that God has them in this place at this time for a reason, for his purpose. They will not assimilate, but they also will not separate. And at the end of chapter 1, things seem to be going pretty well for them. They have found favor with the king. They have positions of high influence. But then as we dive into chapter 2, a problem emerges. The king has a dream, and it's a troubling dream. He wants to know what it means. So he gathers some people around him, his advisors, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, and he says, I need you to interpret this dream. But these guys can't help him. And part of the reason they can't help him is because he not only wants them to interpret the dream, he wants them to tell him what it is he dreamed. 
He says, tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. And they say, we can't do it. Actually, in verse 11, they say, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. You see, it's their contention, it's their belief that gods are not close and caring and personal. In Babylon, they believe the gods live far off. But as Daniel enters this story, he will seek to show something different. He will seek to reveal that there is a God who cares, that there is a God who's close, that his God is intimately involved with all of human history and all of human affairs. In fact, something happens right here at the beginning of chapter 2 that sets the tone for this entire section of the book. It's in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, and the language of the story shifts to Aramaic. Chapter 1, if you were with us for week 1, it is written in Hebrew. It's the language of almost the entire Old Testament. It's the common language spoken by God's people in Israel almost exclusively. But Aramaic, Aramaic was a common language that was spoken all over the Middle East at this time. It was the common language of the day. And so a key question is, why the switch? Why for six chapters in the middle of this book do we shift to the language of Aramaic? Because it's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, how often have you picked up a book, started reading in English, and then partway through, the author shifts to French or German or Swedish? It doesn't happen. And if it did happen, you would notice And the readers of Daniel are supposed to notice, because this is a very intentional statement that's being made. Here's the statement. God is not just for one people in one place who speak one language. He desires to be known by people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. Daniel's God is not just a God for some people. He's a God for all people. You see, this book is not just about how to survive in Babylon, how to get by. That is not the message of Daniel. This is a book about shining in Babylon. This is a book about sharing your faith in Babylon. This book is about living for God wherever he has placed you. That's the title of my message today, living for God wherever he has placed you. And where he's placed Daniel right now is in the middle of, of an enormous problem. The king's mad because no one can interpret his dream, and so he decrees to kill all the wise men of Babylon, and this group includes Daniel and his buddies. But friends, when you have determined to live for God wherever he's placed you, problems can have great promise. Opportunities flow and grow out of opposition. And Daniel and his friends are going to use this problem to promote the name of God right where they are. Let me stop and ask you a question this morning before we continue. Have you considered that maybe God has you where you are because he wants you in that place? He wants to use you in that situation, in that job that you have? 
in that group of people that you work with, in that family that you're in, in that friendship, in that neighborhood, kids, when school starts back up someday, we all hope, in that school where you go? Have you considered that God has you in a place because he wants to use you there? And sure, maybe there are some struggles and some problems and some adversity even in those places. And yet, time and time and time again, in the midst of problems, God does his best work. Read the Bible. Big problems equal big opportunities for God to shine and grow and move. And that's what we see in Daniel. Instead of running from this problem, Daniel dives straight in. He goes to the king and he says, King, I think if you give me some time, I can interpret your dream for you. And then Daniel prays. Pastor Ashley talked about this last week, so I won't dive in too deep, but it's worth repeating. This is where Daniel begins. Daniel's problem is quickly followed by Daniel's prayer. And now we pick up the story in verse 24. Right after Daniel prays and praises his God, here's what we read. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. We've talked about Daniel's problem, Daniel's prayer. Now I want to look at Daniel's posture. It's contrasted here with this other guy we meet in this section, Arioch. Daniel goes to Arioch. He's the commander of the king's guard, and he says... Ariok, don't execute the wise men of Babylon because I can't interpret the king's dream. But then Ariok takes Daniel to the king and listen to what he says. He says, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. You see, it's a real subtle thing here, but you'll notice that Ariok spends this moment just a little bit to get some credit for himself. To point out to the king that he's the one who sought out and found Daniel. It's as if he's saying, King, you know, a lot of people are working hard for you these days, but I went the extra mile. I combed through all the exiles even, and I found this guy. So this guy wants credit. He wants recognition. But, but in Daniel, we see the exact opposite. In fact, Daniel goes out of his way to tell the king, I can't do it. I can't do what you need. I don't have what it takes. He says, I may be the guy standing in front of you, but the one who deserves all the credit is the God of heaven. And here's where we see another real interesting thing that happens in this story. All throughout chapter 2, in verses 18, 28, 37, 44, God is referred to by a name that's rarely found in the Old Testament. In fact, in almost every other place in the Old Testament, God is called by either one of two names, Yahweh or Elohim. But here, in Daniel chapter 2, he's referred to time and time again as the God of heaven. Why? Well, because in the midst of this problem, 
Daniel is not just trying to save his own skin. He's trying to do something more. He's trying to let Nebuchadnezzar know that this God who has interpreted his dream is not just Daniel's God, but he's Nebuchadnezzar's God as well. He's the God of heaven. He's the God over everything. And this God is not far off and distant. He's the one who cares and who's concerned and who is actually close. That's Daniel's message. And friends, because Daniel believes this, He can have a certain posture. He can stand before Nebuchadnezzar with great confidence and humility. He's he's here with his life on the line, and yet he's confident and he's humble. Why? Because he knows who his God is. So we have Daniel's problem, Daniel's prayer, Daniel's posture, and now Daniel's prophecy. Verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue. He's talking about the dream. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel here is talking to Nebuchadnezzar about his dreams that are about the future, about future kingdoms, and how at some point... They will all fall away. As we dive into this section, I want to pause for just a moment and tell you that there are different interpretations about these kingdoms. There are good, smart, well-meaning, God-loving scholars who have different views. So we will talk about this section, at least part of it, with an open hand, with, with a posture of, we can all disagree on some of these details. But there are some truths that this prophecy points to that we can all agree on, that we can unite around, that we can embrace together. And so I want to talk about the open-handed part first, and then we'll get into the more core central truths that this prophecy teaches us. Here we go, open-handed, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. This is Daniel talking. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So first of all, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire is the head of gold. This was an empire that again emerged in 626 B.C. and lasted till about 539 B.C. They were known, they were known across the world for the amount of gold they had. Nebuchadnezzar's palace was lavishly adorned with gold. You'll remember at the beginning of the story, he invaded Jerusalem and took the gold from the temple back to his kingdom. So this is the kingdom of gold. But Daniel goes on. And he doesn't just talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Following Nebuchadnezzar, he says there will rise up another empire, the chest and arms of silver. This is, many believe, the Medo-Persian empire. 
They actually overthrew the Babylonians in 539, and they ruled the ancient world until about 331 BC. There are two arms here because this is the picture of two kingdoms that came together, the Medes and the Persians, to rule. But then arises another empire, the Greek Empire, in 331 BC. And they they were led into power by a guy whose name you might recognize, Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great would would march into war, the breastplates of his soldiers, their their swords and, and their helmets and their shields, they were all made of a certain material. Can you guess? Bronze. This is the kingdom of bronze, the Greek empire, the third empire. But then as the dream continues, here comes a fourth kingdom. Verse 40, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Friends, history records that this is exactly what happened to the Roman Empire. It rose up in 146 BC, and it kept growing and expanding by force. In fact, the Roman Empire conquered more of the known world than any of the other empires, but eventually they had such a wide geographic domain with different languages and different people groups and different religious loyalties that people began to divide and the entire empire fell apart from the inside out. Now, let me just pause here and say, if you're like me, it completely blows your mind that Daniel prophesied all of this history 600 years before Jesus. And this just shows that there's nothing in human history that surprises our God. He wasn't surprised about what would happen then. He's not surprised about what is happening Today, that's our God. He holds the whole world, as the children's song goes, in his hand. That's our God. But but another central point of this prophecy that I really want you to hear, because I think it'll challenge you, it challenges me, it challenges the way that we will live, is this. The kingdoms of this world, as strong and powerful and mighty and as stable as they may seem, they all come and go. The things of this world, the things of worldly value in my life and in your life, they may create temporal pleasure or momentary security or a sense that your life is good and rich and full of meaning for a season, but at some point, all the things of this world are going away. The image that Daniel uses in verse 35 is of chaff. He says, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor. Friends, in the ancient world, people would take their wheat 
And they would take it to a threshing floor, a a hard-packed surface, generally up on a hill. And and they would crush their wheat and they would break off the the hard outer shell. And when the hard outer, outer shell was broken off, the wind would come and it would blow it away. That's the chaff. It's just blown away by the wind. And Daniel says, the kingdoms and things of this world are like chaff. They will all eventually just blow away. Friends, real important question here. Is your life about attaining the things and building a kingdom that will one day just blow away? Or or are you part of a kingdom that will last forever? Have you met the God of heaven? Is your life about something that will continue on forever into eternity? Because that's what Daniel is introducing King Nebuchadnezzar to in this passage. He says, there's a greater kingdom, another kingdom, an eternal kingdom that's coming. Listen to what he says in verses 44 and 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. You see, Daniel says the kingdom of God will come and it will undermine all of the kingdoms of this world. We're told twice in this chapter that it's a rock. It's symbolized by a rock cut not by human hands. In other words, Daniel is saying, this is not a kingdom of might or force or military strength or political power. This is not a kingdom that comes by controlling resources or peoples or borders. This is not a kingdom built by human effort. This is a supernatural kingdom that through God's strength restores people, restores humanity and our world from the inside out. And Daniel is saying, be aware, know this to be true. That supernatural kingdom of God is on its way. It is coming. And when it comes, it may seem small. It may seem average, just like a rock. There's nothing shiny or flashy or special about it. It it will be powerful and it will grow. It, It will start small, but it will be powerful and it will grow. Daniel here, friends, is prophesying what would be the hinge of human history. He says the turning point of the world is coming. And Daniel wouldn't live to see it. He talks about this moment when the kingdom of God will break into this world and and he wouldn't live to see it. Centuries of people after him wouldn't live to see it and they would all begin to wonder, will it ever happen? Will it ever come? But then one day, an obscure carpenter from Galilee began his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is now at hand. It's, it's shown up on the scene. The kingdom of God has arrived in me. Friends, do you now understand just a little bit more why people trembled when they heard those words? Because this is what the world had been waiting for. 
Jesus was saying, I am the rock, not cut by human hands, not prepared by human beings. This is why the New Testament, this is why Peter in 1 Peter calls him the living stone. This is why the New Testament time and time again refers to him as the cornerstone because he is the the rock upon which it is truly safe and secure to build your life. He brings a kingdom that will endure forever. It's a kingdom about you being restored by God's grace into right relationship with your heavenly father. It's a a kingdom that offers you the power of God through his spirit in your life so that he can transform you and recreate you and use you to bring grace and peace and love and harmony to this fallen, broken world that we live in. Jesus comes and says, I can do all of that in you. Not because you deserve it, not through your human effort or by trying really hard, but by God's grace. Through my death on the cross and my resurrection from the grave, you can be made right with God and receive life now and forever in my kingdom. So let me ask you again, friends. Are you living for the right kingdom Are you living for the right kingdom? Have you surrendered to God and are you allowing him to rule and reign every part of your life? Maybe you have, but there are some places that, if you're honest, have started to drift away. Let me encourage you, name those today. Get clear about those places. Confess them to your heavenly father. Ask him to help you move back under his loving care and rule and control. That's what he wants for you. But maybe you're watching today and you realize, I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never stepped into the kingdom of God. In fact, maybe you've been chasing and pursuing and living for the things of this world. Friends, if that's you and God's spirit is calling you back to him, I'm going to pray in just a minute and I'm inviting you, I'm asking you to just pray this prayer and say these words and give your heart and life to the Lord. When you step into God and his kingdom and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there is nothing like it. There is a freedom, there is a humble confidence that we see in Daniel that will be given to you and you'll be given God's spirit to walk with you and lead you and guide you, not just in this world, but now forever into all eternity as you walk with your heavenly Father. Here's what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, this is about saying, Jesus, be in charge of my life because I believe deep inside of who I am with all that I am that you defeated death, that you conquered the grave on my behalf, that I am now made right with my heavenly Father because of you and what you have done. Friends, if you've never made that declaration, if you've never stepped into a relationship with the God of heaven, and I encourage you to pray this prayer. Just say these words in your own way, in your mind, in your heart, straight to God. I promise you, he's listening. And so let's pray together. Even if if you need to bring your life back to God or an area of your life back to God, or if you need to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, let's pray together right now. Father, right now, um, we thank you for this kingdom that you've brought. 
for your son that you've offered, for this gift that you've given because of your love and grace and mercy to, to bring us back into right relationship with you and to restore us into the people that you created us to be and long for us to be, God. God, we confess that we are often tempted to chase the things of this world, that we look to the kingdoms of this world for safety and security and satisfaction, God, and yet every single time they disappoint us. And so God, help us to fix our eyes on you, to turn our hearts and lives back to you. And if there are people, Lord, who have never received you as Lord and Savior for the first time, hear them as they just say, Father, I trust you. I love you. I surrender to you as Lord, and I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross and to be raised again to new life, that I might be restored into right relationship with you forever. I declare with my mouth, Jesus, that you are Lord, and I believe in my heart that, God, you raised him from the dead on my behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for inviting us in to this rich, full, meaning-packed life that will go on forever. We're forever grateful. We love you because you first loved us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, friends.